Elevon will probably sell 500 plus homes this year. It's important to me to create a community where people really enjoy being there. 90% of the people who say they bought there, bought there only because of one thing. When they walked in, they felt like everybody liked them. The culture pulled them into the community. Welcome to the Alessant Innovator Series podcast. I'm April Lamont, the CEO of Alessant. Today, I'm joined by John Marlin, the president, CEO, founder of MA Partners in Dallas, Texas. John, welcome to the pod. It's great to have you here with us today. It's great to be here. Awesome. Um, can we start by having you share a little bit about yourself, your background, kind of how you got to where you are today? Um, yes, I am actually from Melbourne, Florida, and I grew up and was raised there and grew up uh, wearing cutoff jeans and running around the neighborhood barefoot and uh, graduated from Melbourne High School in 1984. I did not go to college. I have uh, two brothers, one actually here in Garland. He kind of followed me here. Um, he's a captain of the fire department and has been for years and years and years. And then I have another brother in Gainesville, Florida, and he's actually in charge of IT security and has been for years for the entire University of Florida. So if anybody ever tries to hack me, be careful. <laughs> <laughs> I have someone who can back me up. Uh, and then I have uh, a wife, Dana, and three boys. That's great. That's great. Um, I know in, in our early conversations, um, and, and certainly in preparing for this conversation, you described to me a gift or a talent that you felt very early in your life as a teenager. Could you talk a little bit about that and how that entrepreneurial spirit and you know, knack for business really emerged for you? Yeah, I knew in my early teens that I had an entrepreneurial spirit. And um, I really believe that, and I've learned this over time since then, but I, I really believe that God has given everyone a talent and you kind of have to go figure out what that is and utilize it. And I knew mine is business. And not that I am the greatest business guy around, I'm far from it, but, but I have no fear. And that I did realize, and people have mentioned it to me many, many times over the years is you did what? And you've never done that before. <laughs> And I would, nothing scared me. I would just, if I saw something that interests me, I would tackle it and um, figure it out. And so as you were getting started and recognizing this gift, this, um, this talent, this drive for business, so, you know, pretty young, um, how did that initially come to fruit? What was the fruit that was born of, of that recognition of that resilience fearlessness, determination. What'd you do first? Um, right out of high school, I actually asked my best friend's dad to loan me $6,000 to start a sod and landscape company. And he actually loaned me the money, which I was kind of semi-surprised at. But uh, I ran that for a couple of years. Uh, all day long, I would lay sod, do landscaping. And then, uh, of course, everything I bought was super old equipment. So I would stay up till two or three in the morning every night, trying to keep the equipment running. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, that, that would get old really quickly. 
Uh, I ended up selling that after a couple of years, learned a lot, but didn't make a whole lot of money. And then actually started doing stucco and drywall for about eight months. And then after that, started my own stucco and drywall company. That actually grew to 85 employees. And I had that for several years. Um, and, you know, and then, then all of a sudden Hurricane Andrew happened. And then we kind of went a different direction. Yeah. So tell, tell us about that. So you, um, you recognize that there would be both a need and an opportunity, right, as it related to Hurricane Andrew and the aftermath of that devastating storm. That's right. And, and actually, right before that happened, I got married. So it wasn't just a few months after we were married. She was from Dallas. She moved down to Melbourne. And then a few months later, I'm dragging her to Miami and Homestead. But uh, that was an experience. I could, yeah, there's a lot of stories I could tell about that. But we went down there at first just to, a lot of people were doing this, buying homes that were damaged, fixing them up, and then selling them. And the way it worked, insurance companies were kind of paying the full value of a home to the insured. So people, like this first couple we bought a house from, their house was probably worth 300000 three and a quarter. The insurance company wrote them a check for the full value. They turned around and sold me the house and the lot for 50000 So they actually get a little extra money. I would put, I put 150000 in that first one. So I have 200 in it and sold it for 300 or three and a quarter. And so did that a few times. Um, the thing is, though, that there was, there was nowhere to live down there. Yeah. There was people coming from all over the country, even the world, and they lived in tent cities all over Miami and Homestead. So we actually lived in the damaged home with 15 other workers while we rebuilt the house. And uh, so that was interesting doing that with a new wife. Uh, so that was the first start. And then we actually got involved in uh, the opportunity to rebuild a very large condominium complex in Homestead. And I teamed up with a general contractor out of Melbourne named Michael Williams with MH Williams Construction. And so we got the opportunity to rebuild this large condominium complex. Would you say that was sort of the start of your of your thinking of, you know, sort of yourself as a as a developer? Actually, no, I don't think so. No, not at that point. Um, I learned a lot through, you know, all that vertical construction and having to relook at everything because it was it was very well damaged. And in fact, you know, there's another story on that. I mean, we had sold the house we were living in. So when we got this project and awarded the contract, we actually went through the condos, tried to find the one that was the least damaged. Mm. And that's where we lived. Um, so we found the one that was least damaged and then we went shopping. But where we went shopping was all the other damaged condos and trying to find a bed that was still in, in good shape and a dining room table. And we took all these things from other condos and put them in the condo we found. And that's where we lived for the next year. So uh, my wife could probably spin these stories a little differently, <laughs> but, but she was a real trooper. No she doubt. did. I mean, she was amazing. She, she rolled her sleeves up and worked right by my side. And uh, it, it was, it ended up being really good, but we rebuilt that. That probably took a year. And then, uh, then we were done with Miami and Homestead. One of the things that we talked about related to this project is 
about Michael specifically and the opportunity to really have a strong mentor early in your career. Could you share a little bit more about what that relationship was like? Yeah, I mean, Michael Williams, he was a special person to me. And I think he was to just about everybody he met. I mean, he, the way he did business and he was, he had a large program and did very well, but he always did it transparently, honestly, always made the correct moral decision. And he was just one of those salt of the earth type guys. And I think following him and listening to him and talking to him really gave me direction on how I do business. And I think he had a, a lot to do with that. You know, it's interesting when I reflect back on other conversations in this podcast, how often people, the guest refers back to that mentor early in their career that helped really shape, you know, the rest of, of their career. And, you know, it's a, it's a wonderful thing that I think is part of our industry is that people want to bring bring along the next generation. And so it sounds like uh, Michael was that person for you. Yes, definitely. So moving along, now it's Dana's turn, right? So she was the trooper um, by your side working the, the Homestead Project, at, but now she wants to, to move back to Dallas. Is that right? Yeah, actually, uh yeah, I mean, when we finished the project and I had, I had turned over the stucco business to my brother. And so he was running at the time. And I, I just ended up asking Dana, where do you want to live? And she's like, man, if we could, I'd love to go back to Dallas. And I said, okay, let's shut the business down. Let's go. And so uh, I think it was 92 or 93 that we, uh, probably 93, we moved to Dallas, Texas. What was the market like then as you... We're essentially starting over a lot more experienced, right? But creating something new. Well, Dallas compared to Melbourne, I mean, it, it looked like to me there was a lot going on. So it was a, a good market. Um, I was trying in the process of trying to figure out what I was going to do because I moved there without a job, without a place to live. Uh, we lived with her aunt and uncle for a few months. Then I bought uh, a house. But uh, um, in the end, I actually started building homes for a couple of regional home builders. And it's, it's amazing how just little things like that happen in your life, puts you in a direction um, that makes a difference. It seems to me though, listening that you're still tapping back into that entrepreneurial spirit, that fearlessness, that roll up your sleeves. If I don't know how to do it, I'm gonna figure it out. That just seems to be a common, common threat. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I had never built a home top to bottom and the first builder, uh, they, they put me in a community and, uh, I was in charge of building 60 homes at a time. And, uh, and I, I flourished in it. And if there was a problem community, they'd throw me in there and say, go fix it. And that was within a year being there. And then I went to the second builder and actually became within eight months and, you know, and I'm new to this business. VP of construction and purchasing manager and handled everything. And so, um, so that was, you know, all that was great for my learning experience, of course, in the direction I was going. And then I even got involved in some development and developing properties also, uh, once I moved to VP of construction and purchasing manager. 
Um, so I think it was, I probably did that, those two home builders, three or four years. And then that fourth or fifth year, I decided, okay, I'm ready to, uh, do I start a home building company or do I want to start developing property? And in the end, I decided to start developing land. And I started a company called Marlin Land Development. What tipped the scale for you towards development versus home building, John? To be honest, what really made the difference was, do I want to deal with lots of home buyers on a daily basis? Or would I rather just deal with contractors? You know, the people that I want to deal with on a daily basis, you know, what, what do I want to do? And that's actually what made the difference. Well, so now you're, you're um, you know, again, listening, listening deeply inside, leveraging these experiences, these, this fearlessness, not afraid to jump in and t- take over difficult situations. Um, can you describe some of those early deals that you worked on as a land developer? Um, yeah, if I can recall, I, don't, you know, <laughs> I think we've done 70 or 80 plus deals and I could be really low. I don't you know, remember them all and I don't keep a list of them all. But uh, over the years, you know, we did 80 plus projects, probably 50 acres to 1800 acres. And you know, also in the midst of all that, I mean, I did some crazy things. I built a, I think it was a six story condominium con- you know, project on the shores of Lake of the Ozarks. And again, never done that before, <laughs> but I've done some stuff like that uh, in different parts of the country um, just because I had the opportunity and went and did it. But, uh, um, but back to Marlin Land Development, you know, we just kept doing projects. We were, we were in Dallas, Houston, Austin, San Antonio, all the major markets of Texas. Um, and uh, yeah, felt like we were doing really well. Um, and then, then of course, then you get into the Great Recession and, uh, and things like that. But um, anyway, and we've got some, I've got some really good stories, uh, you know, of projects that worked really well. But every developer has those stories that are nightmares also. And uh, I have one or two of those. And it's really how you weather those storms. And I, I think we're going to talk a little bit more about st- a, a, a storm that we all have fresh in our minds called a global pandemic. But I think, <laughs> yeah. I think, you know, I'd love to talk a little bit more at this juncture about the project where where you and I met each other, and that's through Elevon. And, you know, it's an incredibly uh, robust project. Um, it, it has many, many different components and key differentiators. Could you talk a little bit more about the project kind of on uh, at a high level? And then we can really drill in, I think, to some of the some of the key points that um, would make sense to talk about further. Um, yeah, definitely. Um, and my kind of overall goal, especially on Elevon, but I think in every community I've done is, I mean, I, I, it's, it's important to me actually to create a community where people really enjoy being there and uh, where they participate and they know their neighbors. And um, yeah, that's, that's always been an important part of what I'm trying to do. And, you know, hopefully maybe even create the opportunity. And I've done this before where you're actually pushing people out of their comfort zone um, to participate and create a different culture than maybe they're used to in their past. So and like we did that with Schaefer's Mill, which is a second home golf course community in Lake Tahoe that we purchased in January of 2011. 
if you talk to, I mean, 90% of the people who say they bought there, bought there only because of one thing. When they walked in, they felt like everybody liked them. It doesn't matter how much money you have or who you were. The culture pulled them into the community. And so I really enjoy that. And it's important to me. So we really try and do that. Um, as far as Elevon, I mean, and I think every developer talks about this is diversity of product. You know, it's important to, to give people the opportunity to move up inside the same community. It's important from an absorption standpoint and uh, people get choices. All those things are important. And we definitely try to do that at Elevon. We have 70 foot locks, 60, 50, 40, 30. We have detached garage empty nester, single parent type product. We have duplexes, we have multifamily, we have two different BTR products. Uh, in the future, we actually are, we're right now talking with an active adult, um, you know, a provider of product. Um, and we have one area that is kind of on the north side that's kind of secluded by itself from a creek and it has some trees. We want to create some larger lots that where the price points are even a million plus. So we have a lot of different products, probably all the way from 250,000. Well, first you can rent, but then 250,000, you know, all the way up to probably north of a million. So, you know, that's always important to do and do it right. And then from an amenity standpoint, I can kind of walk through that, but of course, everybody talks about wellness. Um, you know, so we have nine miles of trails. We have fitness equipment along those trails. We have a couple of dog parks, pickleball. We have a couple of stock ponds where you can fish. Uh, we have numerous pocket parks and different activities in each park. Uh, we have at least three amenity centers. Probably we might end up with four. We have overlooks. We have actually deep kind of uh, wide creeks that, that look really cool. So we have some overlooks over those. You can sit at a you know, bench or picnic. We have open space for soccer and other field activities. Uh, we have a series, one area, we have a series of lakes with a pump system. Uh, and that gives that waterfall look and effect. And we have an overlook on that and picnic benches and, and so forth. And um, so all those things, we have two elementary schools that'll be on site. So all those things will be part of it. We've, we've had the opportunity to work together because of the Elevon app. And one of the things that I really love about your vision is that it's about how you feel when you live there. You have the breadth of product covered. So people are going to find their right place in terms of the type or style of home and rent versus buy. But I love the focus on what would it feel like to live here and really the commitment to having uh, really people love where they live. And that's really evident in your plan. Now, you, you've had to invest a lot of time, right, in both procuring the, the right land for this project and, and uh, the entitlements. Could you talk a little bit about that and what went into really creating the bones of what is now Elevon? Yeah, and I'll answer that. But before I do, I do because you, you said something that triggers something in my mind. And as far as providing that experience, you know, and this to me, I really wanted to go to another level. And that's why Alessandro, you know, it's a differentiator. It's something that's new and it provides, I think, another 
level of great service and something that ties the community together. Uh, the same thing with uh, fiber optics. <laughs> we tried, um, we're like, okay, we're going to go to providers. This was years ago. And we, we want we want to figure out how to get fiber all the way into the house. And if you get fiber into the house, it's easy to provide like one gig, what they call symmetrical. So up and downloads are the same, one gig. Mm -hmm. uh, usually if you have 100 uploads, you only get 10 downloads. <laughs> and so uh, um, it's usually 10%. So we went to numerous providers and the, you know, the door just kept getting shut. That Nobody wanted to do it. Nobody wanted to do it. And it's not that difficult to do, I have found out. Um, so we decided to go do it ourselves. So it took us, it was a learning curve. It took us a couple of years to figure it out and talk to a lot of people and everybody you talk to, they said they knew how to do the whole thing and come to find out they didn't. And I mean, it, it took some time, but uh, so now, but to this point, to keep a long story short, we actually own all the fiber infrastructure. We put fiber all the way in to the, into the house. We own the head in and we teamed with a provider and we actually offer one gig symmetrical to every home in the, in the community. We actually can do two gigs um, um, to every home and they actually get it, but we just mark it as one. And so that's something we did. I, you know, I think that's for sure important going forward to every home that they have that bandwidth. And it was important to me to figure out how to make that happen. Um, and one other thing we did was, which is probably a little different. We actually created a water company. We dug so far two wells um, and we actually sell water to the HOA below what they can pay for it, the cost of paying for it from the local provider. So again, long-term that uh, will help the HOA long-term project to this size. That's a material number over time. So what was your question again? <laughs> I got sidetracked. Well, just about the entitlement process, but I think that you, um, you've interjected some really great thoughts around anticipating how people are going to live in this community. Oh, definitely. Yeah. So, um, yeah, it took us entitlement wise. I think we spent a couple of years entitling it. Uh, well, actually it took us like a year and a half to even negotiate the contract that we got from the seller. So we worked with them for a long time, figuring out what works for both of us. And, and then started the entitlement process, which was probably another two and a half years. So about four years altogether before we could, could break ground. And so we broke ground on section one, probably a couple of years ago. And now section two is on the ground and we'll probably end up, uh, Elevon will probably sell 500 plus homes this year. That's that's terrific. And um, how many how many builders do you have building homes for you? We have uh, six builders in there right now. And the amenities are, are coming online as well. Yeah, our first amenity centers will be done here in the next like two or three weeks. Um, we already have one of our uh, docks and fishing ponds done. And we have miles of trails already in and fitness equipment and all that stuff. And then we're in the process of section two doing all that all over again. We actually have the amenity center in section two is probably 40% bigger than the one in section one and um, another fishing lake and, and the ponds, the series of ponds with the waterfall effects being built right now and almost finished. So all that's going on as we speak. And you've mentioned as well that, you know, you're really looking at the commercial retail um, components as well. 
Yes. Yeah, we have, uh, of course, the residential and diversity product. We have the multifamily. We actually have an 87-acre business park. Uh, and we have uh, about 60 acres of commercial and retail. And so all that in the multifamily. So all that uh, we're in the process of uh, working on. And I've been surprised because I always thought the commercial and the retail and the business park would be like years out. But uh, we have right now activity on all those, and which is surprising to me how early that was. But uh, things are moving along pretty good. Well, this is a really important project for Levon, Texas. And I know that one of the things that we talked about that really struck me was your commitment to aligning vision. Um, can you talk a little bit about how that happened with Elevon and with, with Levon, Texas? Yeah. Well, our approach with uh, to business in general and, and pretty much any city is to just be transparent, you know, with humility. And the goal is to merge our visions. And if we can figure out a way to where our version, our, our, their vision and our vision merge in a way that we're both comfortable with, then we can move forward. And if, you know, if for some reason that's not going to happen, we don't, you know, we're not going to bully them or, you know, keep pounding on them for a year. I mean, it's just, they want what they want. We need what we need (laughs) or it doesn't work financially. And, uh, um, so you just, you know, we just, we're just very laid back, easy going. Hey, if this works, we'll move forward. We'll figure it out. It'll end up being a great community. If it doesn't, we'll move on. We'll go do something somewhere else. I mean, it's really that simple. Life's too short to be in these battles um, that really get you nowhere. And it's not what they want. Yeah, that's, that's a great, that's a great point there. Well, at this juncture, I would love to shift our conversation to talk a little bit more, John, about you. We, um, in every episode, we ask our guests two questions. And um, the first of that of those questions is the, the sources of inspiration that you rely upon, you know, to stay fresh and energized in, you know, what are our very demanding roles with a long time horizon in terms of beginning, middle, and end. How do you, how do you stay inspired and energized, John? Well, first, I would really have to say that what keeps me going and gives me inspiration is really God and my church family and my direct family. Um, they're super, all those are super important to me. And uh, I try and focus on that. Now, when I was younger, um, you know, one of the things that I wish I had learned then that I know now is to balance that work and family and, and, uh, and so forth in life better than I do now. But I think I do a really good job at it now, but, and then, um, to be honest with you, my second focus is really just, uh, at this point in time in my life and my, and my whole family is involved in this is giving back. And we have a nonprofit family, nonprofit. And we try and give back in a lot of different ways. You know, we're, we're part of, uh, we partner with Union Gospel Mission, UGM, it's a homeless shelter. We give homes away to wounded veterans, doing a couple this year. Um, we, through our nonprofit, mentor uh, teens and young adults. And 
know, we, we participate in team with South Dallas schools and do a lot with the schools and mentor. You know, we have someone there usually weekly mentoring kids in different schools. Um, we, we put on an annual career fair for the South Dallas high schools um, and numerous other things. We try and help families, whoever, you know, whoever needs help. If it's real and we can help, we help. It's such a great way to summarize that because it is kind of leveraging or, or, or calling all that you've learned through your career, through your life. Um, and I really admire your commitment to transferring that to efforts to help other people. So thanks for sharing that with us. You know, you sort of hinted a bit there at the second and last question that we, we like to cover in this podcast. I'll start by saying that we have a, a pretty young audience. I mean, we have a broad audience, but, you know, I love that people earlier in their career are listening to this podcast and getting the opportunity to hear and learn from people like you, John. What advice would you give um, looking back at your 25-year-old self or thinking about, you know, the 25-year-old that you might be mentoring? You know, what, what advice would you share with those listening today? As far as like the advice I would give myself, the things, a few things that I wish I would have known back then and been better at, but, you know, like stay out, just simple things like stay out of debt. Don't let debt, especially when you're young, sometimes it takes going through it to learn it. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I got even at a very young age, got myself into a little trouble with credit card debt. And uh, now I'm the opposite. So I have no debt. <laughs> I've learned a lot. So, you know, you know, be careful with that. I mentor actually a lot of a lot of young adults, and they're always asking me, you know, what are you doing? What should I do this young financially? And I keep telling them, you know, open up a Schwab account, and even it, just get in the habit. If it's fifty dollars a month, put fifty dollars a month in it, and buy some stocks of good companies, and just you know, when you're sixty, you'll be glad you did it. If it's a hundred dollars a month or whatever, get in the habit. Then they started asking me, well, what should we do? What should we buy? So finally I said, okay, here's what I'm going to do. I actually have a text group now. So anytime I buy or sell something, I text them what I'm doing and why, and that they're at their own risk and do what they want to, but now they can at least know what I'm doing. So that's been pretty fun and, uh, and, and uh, to work with them on that. But something I already mentioned um, that I wish, I really wish I'd done better, and that's you know balance the work-life family better than I, than, uh, than I did back then. Um, you know, one other thing that's, I think even my personality is just be adaptable to changing market conditions and open to new ideas and strategies. And, um, I have never had a problem that if we're going in one direction and more information and new information comes and it's the right decision to go 180 and go in the other, I have no problem doing that. And if that's the right direction, we're going to do a 180. We're going to go in the other direction. And some people struggle with that. Uh, that would be something that I would uh, recommend they think about. Um, probably as far as me and the, my approach, I mean, super important to me is always do the right thing. You know, make the right decisions from a moral standpoint, even when you might lose money and it's not advantageous to you. You know, do the right thing um, 
uh, uh, quite a few people say, you know, that use this term that it's not personal, it's business. And it's probably too strong a word, but to me, they're idiots. <laughs> that's, that's ridiculous. Um, you know, business is personal and it is a reflection of who you are. And to me, if someone says that, that means they're making an excuse and they're getting ready to do the wrong thing. That's what that means. If you say that, that means you're getting ready to do the wrong thing. And you think for somehow that makes it right. I don't, that's not correct. That's so powerful because I think it's something that we've, everyone has heard, right? That, you know, it's not personal, it's business. And, and yet to your point, we're all people who make choices and those choices are either true to your values, true to who, um, and how you view your own personal integrity, regardless of them being in a business setting or not. And what I hear you saying is, hold, toe the line, hold the line, set your own set of values, your own sense of personal integrity and bring that everywhere you go. Yes. April, you're much better explaining that than I am. <laughs> so that, that's absolutely perfect. And, uh, and trust your instincts and your gut feelings. I mean, if there's someone you're contemplating going in business with and there's some red flags, do not do business with them. And no matter how great the deal looks, uh, Nine times out of 10, you'll wish you had. I love that because it, it really is uh, trusting your own wisdom. We, we all have innate wisdom, right? And, um, and we might have different beliefs around where that wisdom comes from or that inner voice, but trusting that voice has been so important. I know for me in my life, and thank you for sharing how it's been important to you. And I think that's a wonderful place to pause the conversation and leave people really reflecting on what that means to them individually. John, this has been a tremendous pleasure for me to get to know you better and to have you be so generous with your own experiences. I mean, I think if I were to sum this up is, you know, there's not, there's, there isn't one path to life, right? And to being true to yourself, true to your sense of integrity, listening to that inner voice and letting that combination guide you. Um, you, you can come and go wherever you'd like from there. It's, uh, it's really just a wonderful life lesson. I really appreciate you very candidly sharing what your experience has been. Well, thank you. Um, uh, I'm not sure this is exactly what you were expecting, but, uh, just, trying to be me, I guess. And I appreciate you inviting me on. Well, it was exactly what I'd hoped for. And I know our listeners will agree. So John, thank you so much again. And I hope you have a great rest of your day. Thank you. April. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Allison Innovator Series. If you like what you heard, be sure to explore our back catalog of episodes for more insightful commentary from the best and brightest innovators in our industry. Be sure to follow, subscribe, rate and review on whatever platform you use to listen to the show. All of that will help to increase the visibility of this program, which we hope will inspire a new generation of innovators. Tired of losing key fobs? 
The solution is Alessant Azul, a scalable access control platform to enhance your residence experience. With a simple installation, it works instantly, giving your residents mobile access to unlock amenities and spaces. No more fobs, just convenience at your fingertips. Visit alessant.com to discover how Alessant Azul is revolutionizing access control.